Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here through the magic of time zones uh, with all of our regular hosts. Uh, actually, w- joining me here on the East Coast for a rare appearance is David Canfield. Hello, hello. And then all the way across the ocean in France, I literally don't know what time it is there, uh, Richard Lawson. Bonjour. I'm not saying that because it's not uh, not evening. I would say bonsoir if it was evening. Oh, look at your French. Uh, and Rebecca Ford, how's your French? Terrible. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are catching up with you guys pretty much a full week into the Cannes Film Festival and sort of nearing the end, even though it'll be a while longer before we know the winners of the Palme d'Or, et cetera. But you guys have seen a lot, a lot of the titles that you previewed for us in last week's episode. So we're going to get a full can dispatch. And then David and I will regroup and talk a little bit about television because Emmy season does continue onward. But first, uh, just a temperature check, Richard and Rebecca. Uh, how has it been? How is it a good can? I mean, I don't know if listeners really care about this, but it's been a logistic kind of headache. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're an inside second... baseball podcast, so I think you just <laughs> go with true. it. That's true. And I actually did meet a very nice Dutch man in line for something. And he was like, is it possible I recognize your voice from a film podcast? Wow. Um, and he, and, Hello. <laughs> he said he likes the uh, the inside stuff. So anyway, it's just been, um, it's the second year that they've done a, a sort of digital ticketing system where you have to wake up early every morning to request tickets four days out. And that had its expected bugs the first few days. And then that kind of got ironed out. But it's still, it just, it makes everything a little bit more rigid and set and you kind of can't improvise. And that's been um, kind of hard for my usual festival strategy, which is to listen to what people have seen and what they like and see if I can go to a second screening. And and this year, everything, I have to be a bit more um, forward thinking. So I think I unfortunately have missed some stuff because I didn't know to book it uh, four days before it premiered. Are there any examples of something that you've missed out on because of that? There's an Iranian film that I believe was filmed in Jordan called Holy Spider that is a kind of serial killer procedural based on a true horrible case from Iran. And I just and I heard really good things about it. And by the time I did, it was kind of too late for me to um, to book another screening. So I'll have to catch it maybe in Toronto or something. I think it's interesting because this festival is the most difficult for me to book things like the interviews I've been trying to do on the ground here, like everything gets confirmed 12 hours before it's supposed to happen. But at the same time, as Richard's saying, we're dealing with having to plan out our screening schedule four days in advance. So I've had to do a little bit of shuffling and I've gotten lucky to add a couple of screenings that I didn't think I was going to get to. But yeah, logistically it's been tough, but I'd, I'd say film wise, I've been pleasantly surprised with almost everything I've seen, which is a nice feeling. Yeah. Let's hear about that. What's your standout? My standout at this point, I mean, I still have the Claire Denis to go. I have the, I mean, Elvis. I have yeah. Coretta's film. Yet th- those are toward the very end of the week. Kelly Reichardt's film. So I'm curious about all those. But so far, the Mia Hansen Love film, uh, One Fine Morning, which premiered early in the festival and is very small and sort of light and gentle uh, as her films tend to be. She had Bergman Island here last year. Um, but it's just a great movie about a woman and whose father is sort of fading away from degenerative illness, which we see a lot of those stories at Cannes, but this one is not 
as excruciating as Amor or Vortex or something like that. And then she's also entering into a perhaps ill-advised affair with a married man, but it's just got a very sweet kind of summary comportment. And um, yeah, it's the thing that's lingered with me most. Leah Sadu is great in it. And um, yeah, so I mean, I did, I expected to love a Mia Hansen love film. Just to say you are in the tank for Mia Hansen love for a long time. Very much so. But her, again, her movies are small enough that I was kind of expecting something bigger and louder and more declarative to kind of bowl me over. And that has not happened yet. What about you, Rebecca? Can you name one big standout? Yeah, I saw as sort of a last minute addition to my schedule, I saw a decision to leave uh, the Park Chan Wook this morning at 8.30 a.m. And after sort of hearing people talk about it last night, and I really, really loved it. I just thought it was obviously so beautifully shot, but I was just totally engrossed in the story. Um, You know, it follows a detective who is put on this case of this man who falls off a mountain and he's very suspicious um, that that man's wife had something to do with it and then starts to fall for her. And I just thought it was so well done and I just was all in. So it was my last film that I'm going to see before I leave and, and definitely my favorite. I didn't realize we were catching you at just like the exact closing moment. Like all of your freshest thoughts, nothing that nothing you're going to miss until you, you know, catch up with them until you write in six months or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely bummed to miss quite a few films. Like they can really wants you to stay till the end. They do uh, put a lot of, of promising stuff at the, on the last couple of days. So if I could, I, I, there's quite a few more I would have liked to see. But I feel lucky I got to see as much as I did. David, how are you coping with can FOMO? Is it like, for me, I just want to ask these guys about everything. Is there, there anything, any burning questions you've been having from watching this all from afar? I wouldn't say burning questions. It's mostly doom scrolling through gorgeous photos and <laughs> FOMO at reaction tweets that are typed out instantaneously as the credits start rolling. I feel FOMO about all the bread everybody's eating. Like the so bread, many absolutely the bread. <laughs> I'm very jealous. No, I mean, it seems like, yeah, the Mia Henson love is definitely... The one I personally was most excited for, I've loved pretty much all of her films, and it sounds like it really delivered. It seems like Paul Mescal had a nice, um, has had a nice breakout moment this season, and uh, the film, I'm forgetting the name of it, but the more indie film that he has there sounds Rebecca, really you know, you just interviewed him. Yeah, probably After Sun, the more pleasant watch of the two. The more- <laughs> the one. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, After Sun, um, and I, I'm a huge fan of his, so... Yeah, both he and Leah Sadu have a couple films there, so it's nice to see them getting a breakout moment. Well, David, I, I think by breakout moment you mean the sweater tennis vest with no shirt that Paul Mescal mm-hmm. wore to the A24 party just to oh. match his, his mullet and mustache. <laughs> Wait, uh, multiple yeah, words there that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> mullet and mustache. <laughs> he, was in, he, he was sporting quite a look. I mean, it looked good, but he was. I talked to him for a little bit with a colleague, and he seemed a little insecure, and so we tried to kind of reassure him. I think it was his first can, and we were like, no, 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 it's working, it's working, we promise. God, what is, if, if Paul Mescal is insecure, I'm worried about the rest of us. That, <laughs> well, I was thinking about it, and if he got famous during COVID, like Uh at the height of like quarantines. And so like, I don't think he's had an opportunity before this to really do like big pressy events like Cannes. And because he had two films here, here he was kind of thrown way into the deep end. But the good news is that After Sun especially has been really rapturously received here. I have yet to see it because again, schedule problems, but I'm glad that Rebecca was able to see it on our behalf. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that film. And I think he's just a phenomenal actor. And, and we sat down for a little interview here and 
talked about how dedicated he is to indie films. You know, there were big offers that came his way, but he chose these two films to be his follow-ups. And he's, I don't know, self-deprecating and like doesn't seem to take himself too seriously, but is very serious about the work. And I, I, I really think we'll be watching him for, for quite a while now. And he seems to be enjoying himself. So it was, it was nice. It's nice to see him get that attention. And his other film, God's Creatures, is a, was a really interesting choice for him to kind of follow up normal people with because it is not a hero role. That's all I'll mm-hmm. say. I don't want to spoil anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, he plays the son of Emily Watson. And it's so great to see Emily Watson, like, holding the camera's attention for a whole movie again. I feel like it's been a long time since she's gotten this kind of lead role. So I didn't love all of God's Creatures. It's from the people who made The Fits, which was a kind of Sundance breakout a few years ago. But it's definitely got great performances, Mezcal included. Yeah, Rebecca, you've been on the um, kind of star-studded beat for us because you've done a lot of uh, sit-downs and like they all include a description of the beautiful location where you're talking to these famous people, which is nice work if you can get it. I'm not trying to contain my jealousy. Um, But who else seems to be having a a good can of the people you've talked to? George Miller's film seemed to go over pretty well for being kind of a a riskier film. Um, Most people liked it, at least, if not loved it. And, you know, he took a a big swing with this magical realism, big, ambitious story. So I think that went over pretty well. Um, Well, 3,000 Years of Longing is the one that I just had the hardest time kind of reading on the reactions because I think everyone admired the swing, but it was really hard for me to tell if it's going to debut over here and people are going to be like, what in God's name is this? Like, how weird should we be bracing for? It's not in itself weird. It's just weird that it's like a 2022 movie because it feels like something that would have come out 20 years ago, if not more, because it's so earnest. It's genuinely just about a genie and the person who frees him and about like the genie's past. And it's very, it's about love and time. And it's, you know, it's not... I mean, it's reminiscent of Mad Max in in terms of its visuals, you know, although it was mostly a COVID project, so a lot of it is digital and stuff. He wasn't able to amass, you know, a ton of people for any given scene. But yeah, its context in the here and now is strange. But I think really at root, it's a bedtime story for grownups in kind of a sweet and endearing way. And I think I worry about that film's chances once it comes stateside because I don't want to speak for other critics here, but I went in with kind of basement level expectations because it sounded like it was kind of a fraught thing. It had been, he'd been working on it for a long time and then it finally came together and then COVID happened. You know, the subject matter seemed out there in some ways. And um, so I was, those expectations were very happily surpassed and then some, I, I really enjoyed the film. But now that people have seen it and those reviews have been filed and hopefully read, maybe people might be expecting more. And I don't know if the film will live up to that, but I hope it does because it it is a sweet film and Idris Elba is incredible in it. What could seem like a kind of thankless, maybe somewhat problematic casting with him as this, you know, magical genie, he really seizes the opportunity with relish. And in fact, during the standing ovation for that film, he got very, te- or the intro when they walked in, he got very teary and it was his first can ever. And um, I think he really delivered on all of that expectation. David, what are you expecting from that, from watching from afar from George Miller? Yeah, it was really hard to read for me too. I, I read quite a few less than enthusiastic reviews, let's say. But it, to me, it's, it's really exciting. I mean, and I think Richard spoke to a lot of that in his review. Such a change of pace and two really exciting actors for him to work with specifically. I'm not expecting like a best picture candidate, 
or anything like that, which doesn't even, you know, speak to quality necessarily. I'm, I'm purely expecting a very, very different movie from George Miller, a director whom I have a lot of trust and, and faith in, in, and who I'm just ex- curious about seeing uh, working in this kind of form. I think the movie will have its many detractors because they were rolling their eyes at how earnest it is or they think other things don't come together. But I think maybe a smaller contingent, but still a a vocal one, it's going to have real diehard fans, you know, Mm. in the way that people stump for like... uh, Alita Battle Angel or something. You just made or, me think of Cloud Atlas. Is like, is that a comparison? Uh, that's here? a perfect. That's, that's a perfect a good comparison. One, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was also about love echoing through time, and you know, yeah. it was a big, ambitious, earnest kind of swing. And and yeah, the, those films actually do kind of almost seem in dialogue with one another in some ways. So yeah, I mean, I think that like, no matter what happens financially for the film, I think as a filmmaker, and you know, if as his work is being assessed on its art, assessed on its artistic merits. I think he will definitely have his supporters. Um, well, David, you mentioned a Best Picture campaign, which you you cracked the seal, and we, as our <laughs> duty on this podcast, get to talk about Oscar buzz. Although, once again, just like last year when we were, um, David and you and I were watching people writing about Annette's Oscar chances from Cannes, and we were like, what's happening? This can't, we're not doing this. It does feel like there's been a lot of like, well, you know, like if it goes right, but Richard and Rebecca, you guys are there. Like, is there real quote-unquote Oscar buzz or even reason to suggest it for anything that you've seen? We all went into this looking for the the parasite that drive my car. And I don't know if if there is going to be something like that. To me, I don't, there hasn't been anything that I'm like, this is a best picture contender. Thank you. I will tweet that to the world <laughs> sort of situation. I really liked Triangle of Sadness, and there's been some conversation here about screenplay or something like that for it, because it is a really strong script, but, you know, we haven't seen Ruben sort of crack into Best Picture or anything like that. So that's the one film I think I've seen that I feel like maybe could be a part of that conversation, but I don't have a film that I would say we're definitely going to be talking about it for Best Picture in a few months. Yeah, Ruben Osland is a funny, you know, name to, to bring up in these conversations because, you know, I Triangle of Sadness I liked maybe not as much as I hoped to. I've heard rumor that they're going to cut 20 minutes from the movie, which I think the movie could maybe it, ben- yeah. that would benefit from it if they make the right cuts. It's two and a half hours long, and we, at a certain point, we're like, okay, we get the joke. <laughs> like, um, but he, I interviewed him years ago for Force Majeure, a movie that both Rebecca and I adore. And he, this was maybe a week before the Oscar nominations came out, and he, all everyone was saying, you're going to get a foreign language nomination. That's what it was called then, and um, maybe he could win because the movie, you know, had a lot of supporters. And then he didn't get the nomination in the end, and. He had said to me that he really wanted it. Like, he spoke very openly and plainly about that fact. And apparently he had someone filming him when the Oscar nominations were announced, and he didn't get... But he turned it into a short film. What? And, yeah, I didn't know about this. Someone told me this, like, in line for something the other day. And so he has this weird little history with the Oscars, and apparently he's been talking about that again at this festival... So, yeah, I mean, if even if the Academy doesn't count him out, he's not counting them out. Like, he's still, <laughs> he's still invested in that. And maybe Rebecca did an interview with one of the film's stars, Woody Harrelson. Well, more of, he's a supporting kind of ha- almost glorified cameo. But I don't know, maybe Rebecca's interview with him where he said some uh, wild things about masks and other COVID protocol. Yeah. Uh, may, may, that might <laughs> scotch his campaign if there ever was going to be one. Yeah, Rebecca, how was that? 
Uh, surprising. I mean, I just <laughs> sort of asked a, a very basic question of like, because it was his first project to shoot Woody's first project back on set once COVID took over. And it was supposed to shoot in like March 2020. And it got pushed to June. And I just was like, so how, what was that like? And then, you know, the interviews online now feel free to read it. But uh, he basically doesn't believe in germ theory and thinks masks are ridiculous. And told me that he hasn't been sick in seven years because he's a, you know, he eats clean, he's a vegan, he lives in Maui. So I didn't know that anybody was going in that direction, but um, <laughs> that's where it went. So yeah, I, I, I feel like if he wanted to do a campaign, they'd have to get that a little bit under control in his messaging, but... he's He doesn't seem ashamed of it, so I, I don't know how that controlling effort would work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his part in the movie is is short. He actually told me they had thought about having his character go on to the the end of the film, but it's a brief appearance. But the leads of that film are very good. I think Harris Dickinson is a really strong actor and, and we'll see much more of him. If if there's a campaign and he can talk for it, I think that'd be interesting. <laughs> there's also an actress in Triangle of Sadness named Dolly DeLeon, mm-hmm. who uh, is Filipina and she works a lot in Filipino TV. But not in huge roles. From I mean, I, I was just kind of cursorily looking at her IMDb because I don't know if I'd seen her in anything before. And she emerges kind of in the third act of the film and just walks off with it. I mean, she's yeah. so good. And, you know, I think Guy Lodge, who the variety critic, was saying maybe she could get best actress here. I mean, that might be a long shot. But, like, if the movie gets the right U.S. distributor and they decide to really give it a campaign, she would be one to look out for because... She makes such an impression in the movie, and she really does arrive out of nowhere. And you're like, whoa, now the movie's about her? And I thought that was really exciting to watch. And she and Harris Dickinson have very great, funny chemistry together. Yeah, I think what we can say for this movie is, like, it's really fun to talk about. I've been talking to a lot of people about it on the ground here who've seen it, and and I really enjoyed that part of the experience. So I am excited for more people to see it because it's definitely something that's fun to sort of debate and, and laugh about and talk about the performances. So even if it doesn't make the full run to Oscar, I, I hope it's at least something we can all continue to talk about. In terms of the other movies that might have found some awards buzz premiering there, I thought it was interesting that the Mia Hansen Love got picked up by Sony Classics, sort of specialty super campaigner who is not to be underestimated for Best Actress campaigns. I feel like Leah Sadu, you know, she did a cover for this can cycle. She's done a lot of interviews. She's really well known and it sounds like her performance is kind of quote unquote that good that I, I could see it getting some kind of run, especially on the critic side. Um, so that's possibly one to look out for. Yeah, I think that would be more a critics group's kind of thing because it's it, you know it's a very naturalistic muted kind of yeah me is tough for the Oscars for sure <laughs> yeah I reviewed that movie in tandem with a Vicky Creeps movie called Corsage from Marie Kreutzer who's a director um, whose last film The Ground Beneath Her Feet I really liked um, a few years ago and Vicky Creeps has two movies here the other is a sort of Three Hanky Weepy about a dying woman and her co-stars Gaspar Dullier, who of course died himself tragically a few months ago. But anyway, Vicky Creeps in Corsage, she plays Elizabeth of Austria. Um, it's a very Marie Antoinette kind of vibe, you know, like corseted and kind of wasting away in this ca- castle. There's anachronistic music in it. And Creeps just charges through this thing. She's so good. And that's a more like per- vibrant performance than Leah Sadu's, which is more mellow. 
So I don't know, maybe Creeps is someone to keep in mind as well uh, as Leah, as I do. She does feel like someone whose Oscar moment is just like coming. Like, yeah, he's not going to stay on the sidelines for too much longer. I think I think that goes for both of them to an extent. Yeah. Um, also, just seeing that After Sun, the Paul Mescal movie was picked up by A24. Oh, cool. Oh, breaking that's news. interesting. They have both of his films then because God's Creatures are, are also with A24. Well, I t- was talking with someone from A24 at the party. They actually just bought Paul Mescal. So <laughs> yeah. he, he's going to be part of the company now. It's important to get out on the ground floor. I think they just bought the mullet, Richard. I don't think they were <laughs> oh, right. yeah. They're the best. Yeah. But as long as the mullet's attached to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about Armageddon Time, which is just a huge personal interest to me because I, I don't think James Gray has ever made a movie I didn't like. Um, and he is eternally ignored by the Oscars. It's unclear if that's going to change with Armageddon Time, but it does, you know, this is a starry movie, not starry or bad pit and Astra, but it seems fascinating and divisive and like something people maybe will be eager to yell about when it comes stateside, which, um, you know, for getting attention for a small movie might not be the worst thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. That, uh, that was really interesting to write about after I saw it because it is a very much an ideas movie. And I think my review ultimately was actually kind of wishy-washy because it's like, I don't know if I'm the right perspective to write about this. I mean, it's a, a, a semi-memoir piece about um, a kid in early 80s Queens and his friendship with a black classmate and things turn to tragedy as the movie unfolds. And it's really James Gray kind of processing a lot of guilt and maybe trying to do some atonement without, I think, courting forgiveness. I don't think he's being like, give me a pat on the back for being like aware of my privilege or whatever. I think it, it does, it stops before it gets to the point where we're supposed to embrace him for his bravery, you know, which mm-hmm. I think is crucial. Other people did not see it that way. They, they did think it was self-serving and, and whatnot. And as ever, there is a real dearth of black critics here. And I would be, and so I'm very curious to hear what people think about the racial politics in the film once more people stateside get to see it. But I think it's really interesting. Is it Oscar-y? Mm, maybe Anthony Hopkins, who plays the kindly grandfather to the, the lead kid. Maybe the screenplay because it is, you know, very dense with ideas and and whatnot. But it's going to be a tough sell. I will say I'm really glad to see. So this is a focus features movie, and they had Stillwater here last year, a movie that was kind of maligned, but I thought was also great um, because it was tangling with sort of American identity and American guilt and complicity and terrible things. And to see, you know, the big universal logo play before a can movie, and then you sit down for this, these long, naughty, kind of morally complex films, like, I wish more American studios were doing that. You know, mm. it's, it's exciting to see. Then this is a tangent, but the uh, Universal logo played before the Bros trailers came out this week, the Billy Eichner movie coming out last year, which is a red band and like far more explicit than I was expecting in a trailer. So uh, the Universal logo really doing a lot of work this week. That's all. (laughs) I do think it's not a great sign that I was like making my little list of the films I saw this week and I forgot to put Armageddon time on it. Oh no. Uh, (laughs) Because, well, also the days are very long here. So that was like, what, the second or third day, Richard, that we saw that movie? Yeah, it was early. I found myself a little disappointed with it. I just didn't think it was. I mean, I know it's true to his life, but I felt like it just wasn't heightened enough. And I know that's not what he was going for, but the characters, there's no arc to any of them. Not Nobody seems to change. It just, and, and maybe what you're saying, Richard, that he's actually still working through, he's still in the character arc in his own life about how you grow from that sort of experience. But it, it didn't quite work for me. 
I, I definitely think Hopkins is really great and they could give that a go campaign wise, but I'm not sure that's going to make a full run. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Roma in some ways, I don't think that maybe Quran saw that as atonement, but it was him trying to understand the life of his childhood made a nanny, you know, and, and this is similarly an adult man with the context of the present day, looking back at mistakes made and the ways that his family slighted other people mm-hmm. who were of a different race or, or class, certainly. The big difference there is that Roma is also this incredible riot of visual marvel. Yeah. I mean, it, and this movie, True to Dreams, James Gray, is, I mean, it's very handsomely mounted, but it's not, it's not showy and it's quiet and it ends on a note of sort of disquiet and confusion that, um, yeah, you're, I think you're right, Rebecca, that it definitely feels like it, it, it drifts off to an ending instead of saying something declarative at the end. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like the immigrant movie that critics loved and no awards paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here we go again. Um, what else? Top Gun made a splash. Everyone saw those yeah. planes flying overhead. I mean, it's not really our like awards uh, bailiwick, but it does seem like that went exactly as planned. It was funny. They had beach fireworks that evening that had premiered here. And we were all at the A24. They had a lovely beach party with a lot of, you know, American journalists and stuff. And so it was kind of like a little reunion sort of situation. And then the fireworks started going off. And I heard more than, you know, a few people point to the fireworks and say, oh, Tom Cruise. (laughs) 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 Because the fireworks were as much for him as they were for Top Gun. He was physically Um, exploding all of them, hovering in the sky. Although Rebecca, you went to the the sort of he did this hour long rendezvous with Tom Cruise on stage chat thing, and that was less than fireworks. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it was Tom Cruise Day that day, and he did this chat, and a lot of the press was there, and the, it was in the big theater, which not all those sort of moderated talks are. And um, unfortunately, he was very on message. He just kind of kept what we know about him. You know, he cares about the movie going experience and. He does, you know, his own stunts, and he it 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 just was a little disappointing. Um, I don't know, maybe he's just been on message for so long that he's forgotten how to tell a, a story or that feels more personal. And there was a really nice like montage of all his work that again played at the premiere. Weirdly, did not have Nicole Kidman in it, which was pointed out by some people, but. <laughs> That takes some work to cut Nicole Kidman out to of cut her out of everything. Yeah, he got a surprise uh, palm at at the premiere that night, which is a very very rare thing to happen here. It's kind of like a lifetime achievement award, and the whole experience was really all about Tom Cruise. That, that Gaga song is, is so fabulous in the film, so I'm excited <laughs> for her to make an Oscar run for that. But I think that's probably all we'll be talking about for for that one. You also had that great interview with Glenn Powell, um, who I know you've interviewed a lot. And then completely separately, we did this preview of his um, movie Devotion that he's got coming out later this year with Jonathan Majors. So even if like the Cannes experience wasn't about anyone but Tom Cruise, it does seem like Glenn Powell, if, you, if, you've been, if you've been rooting for him, that he's poised for a moment. It does feel like he is definitely having a moment. And and I, I am curious to see when Devotion comes out in the fall, if if that's able to be a part of the... Con- so there's at least one fighter jet movie in the Oscar conversation this season. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he you know, he bought that book and, and produced it before he got his Top Gun role. And that could be interesting that we could be seeing him in the fall. 
Well, and it hasn't premiered yet, but I'm hearing that the Kelly Reichardt, there are a lot of fighter jets in that. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that should be interesting. <laughs> I guess before we let you guys back off to your French activities, any like predictions for either what's left to come or like what award winners we might be talking about next week? So the awards are always hard because it's a different jury every year. Obviously, there's stuff that seems to more resoundingly have played well versus not. There are a lot of filmmakers here who have already won either a Palme d'Or or, or a, another major prize at Cannes. So the question is, are they going to repeat? Like, could Christian Munju, the Romanian director, win again for RMN, his very, you know, <laughs> typically bleak look at contemporary Romania? I don't know. There's a, a movie here called Tchaikovsky's Wife, which is a big Russian epic about um, that closeted gay composer's uh, much beleaguered wife, hence the title. And apparently the actress in that, I haven't seen it, is quite good, sort of a Russian Kate Blanchett. But the question is, will they give a Russian actress, even though she has nothing to do with her country's politics necessarily, yeah. uh, a big acting prize here? Eh, I don't know. So it, that'll be interesting to see. But I, I think my hunch would be that that they're going to give the major prize to something that even after Rebecca and I have seen stuff isn't really on our radar because I, I think a lot of the bigger, splashier, more anticipated titles have played well, but not like been home runs exactly. So maybe there's something lurking that will just happen to catch the fancy of this particular jury. Yeah, I'm excited for you to go to Elvis, Richard. I'm unfortunately missing it. I, it's not for can Awards, but, you know, everyone I think is curious to see if Austin Butler makes a go for it. So... Yeah, that's been the word on the ground from everyone is that at the very least, he's incredible in it. And so I will be very eager to see that and and attend some kind of fancy party where we'll see some more fireworks and we'll point and say, oh, Tom Hanks. So we want to pivot away from Cannes and all these promising uh, international films coming our way eventually. Uh, back to Emmy season. We are nearing the end of May. So all almost all of the shows that will be in the running this year are, um, are premiering. There's still way too much television to watch. Um, but David, you had the idea to check in on comedies specifically, which I think is... It's in some sometimes flies more under the radar than drama because it's obviously the like really heavy duty, like big deal, serious dramas that get attention. But the comedy race is really interesting this year. Um, Rebecca has written about Abbott Elementary and kind of the surprising resilience of the network comedy, but yeah. then you've got far more like untraditional stuff like uh, Barry and Atlanta back in there. Um, do you feel like we should be paying more attention to the comedy race? Yeah, I think that one of the more interesting broad shifts with the Emmys has been in the comedy races. I wrote about this a lot last year was this shift toward nice mm-hmm. that we've seen with Ted Lasso and before that Shit's Creek and Maybe those two aren't the best examples, but I know our colleague, uh, friend, Terry Ariana, wrote a great piece about <laughs> excellent half-hour shows that don't necessarily make you laugh too much, but make you feel good. Or at least that was a big part of that piece. And um, that is one ongoing trend with Emmy comedies, is shows that are fundamentally feel good, or sometimes feel bad. <laughs> There's also the sad com uh, genre as well that finds yeah. love here. Um, that don't necessarily hit the funny bone as much, but still really find that awards momentum in a category that used to honor really broad laugh tracks, laugh track sitcoms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Barry is the huge example of the other element of this. Not yes. It makes you feel good. makes you feel like really bad. I do think I, I tend to laugh like once an episode in Barry, like sometimes in just astonishment that that's what they're doing. 
But I also think Barry is like maybe the best show on TV and I don't mind it kind of taking over the comedy category as a result. Um, you can tell me if you feel otherwise. No, I, I mean, Barry's probably my personal favorite in the category too. But you wonder if some of the momentum, some of the feelings around what this category should honor have moved away from something like Barry, at least as a winner. I mean, Bill Hader's pretty undeniable for best actor. And I do hope that he, even though he's won before, now that he's up against Jason Sudeikis, I still hope he pulls it off because he's pretty extraordinary in that part. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I think this year, shows like Abbott Elementary are almost more likely to have that big Emmy breakout because they fit neatly into what voters have gravitated towards of late. And it's not to say they don't make you laugh at all, right? I just think of something like Tina Fey's stable of 30 Rock and now her what she executive produces Girls 5 Eva, which is like punchline a minute. I laugh harder at that show than I do at most shows. Oh my God, um, yes. But it just doesn't feel like they that matters as much when it comes to cracking this category. And obviously that show faces other challenges being being on Peacock, I suppose. Yeah. Other, other challenge, singular, big challenge, because it is so critically adored. But it does it does feel like it doesn't necessarily hit that sweet spot uh, like Ted Lasso did when it was on a streamer that not a lot of people had um, yeah. and suddenly became this world word of mouth phenomenon. It seems like that's the path right now for comedies. And I'm wondering if this year is going to keep that trend up with something like Abbott Elementary. Yeah. I mean, you think about like Ted Lasso and was it the year before Ted Lasso that it was Fleabag? Like the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. It's hard to know. what I guess Shit's Creek was the year before. So that's two nice ones in a row and then Fleabag. It's hard to identify a long-term trend. Maybe that maybe there never will, will be a long-term trend. Maybe not. And only murders is another one, you know, this kind of yeah. delightful, cozy mystery nestled inside of a, a buddy comedy. It's another one that that feels like it, it, it of that vein that you could see really taking off because it it kind of leaves you with the, with the nice fuzzies. Yeah, I would say that show does make me laugh though. And I, I think I'm just yeah. a, a like really a sucker for Martin Short and Steve Martin. Um, Definitely. And like they make me laugh a lot. So that feels like it strikes a nice balance there where it's not just like, oh, everyone's being kind to each other. Like there's like silly, well executed comedy in every episode of that show. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think with any of those shows, I wouldn't be upset if they completely ran with ran away with it because you know, it's also a matter of taste. I know people who laugh hysterically at Abbott Elementary <laughs> every episode. Yeah. That is not my experience with it, even though I really love the show. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's also just a matter of what's landing for who. Well, and also the question is, is anyone going to run away with it? Like we're, we're so fresh yeah. off of like the Shit's Creek sweep, the Ted Lasso sweep, and to some extent the Fleabag sweep. It feels like a much more divided field now. Which I hope voters follow through with. I, yeah. You know, I, sweeps have gotten really tiresome the last few years with the Television Academy. And I think you can be a fan of Ted Lasso or Schitt's Creek and wonder whether another show can win more than one award. Or in Schitt's yeah. Creek's case, it literally won every single award. Yeah. You know, Ted Lasso did ultimately lose writing and directing and so much something of an upset to hack. So I, I think it's a bit more vulnerable here than people think. And you have a lot of really strong new contenders coming in to say nothing of once multi-winners like Atlanta coming back or Barry. Um, so it's a really dynamic field. And I, I hope though, to say nothing of the nominations, which I'm sure will reflect that, uh, that the winners list will actually reflect that and not just find the favorite show, whatever it may be, getting checked down the line. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about Atlanta because it's been a really interesting case in its new season. Like it's a really different season. It's been gone for a long time, much like Barry and some of the other stuff that has been back. I mean, I've not caught up on the new season, so I'm not a great gauge of it. It doesn't seem like it's occupying kind of the same place that it was. Where like for, I think, I guess it must in season two, like every episode, the next day people would be like, can you believe that they did that? What do you think Atlanta's fate is going to be this time around? I think it's a huge question mark. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't even crack the top eight for comedy series, to be honest with you, wow. because it's it's been a fascinating season. I, I wouldn't say it's been an entirely successful one. I think that's the general consensus. It's not an especially funny season. Mm. Um, and I think about half of it, if you can include the finale, which focuses on Zazie Beetz's van, are anthology episodes. Do not include the rest of the cast, the main cast. Um, take the action predominantly back to the U.S., even though the season's main scenes with Donald Glover, Brian Terry Henry, and Lakeith Stanfield were filmed in Europe. It's it's a case where it came back after so long, and it came back, entered a very drastically different television landscape. I mean, I don't even know Apple TV Plus was existed when it last Probably aired. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll have to fact check that. But I think the point is, if it did, it was not an Emmy player in any way, shape, yeah. or form. And I honestly don't think it did exist. So it, it's facing all this new competition. It does stream on Hulu, but it also felt like part of that FX golden age that has inevitably faded, even as they still continue to produce great content. It seems mm-hmm. like it's not a primary network for Emmy voters, at least, anymore. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I think in this show's case, the laugh factor is a big question because I think Brian Tyree Henry is revelatory, hilarious, dramatically brilliant on this show. I think it's sad that at this point, given where the buzz is for the show, he'll probably never win an Emmy for it. But I think he carries that mantle often very singularly along with Lakeith Stanfield. Beyond them, it's it's not a show designed to make you laugh always as much as, as it is to make you think. And I think it's been a yeah. really... Pro- provocative season but yeah i'm not sure how it's going to translate in a really competitive field yeah so making me think about the last season of master of none which is a pretty different show but i think aziz ansari and donald glover is like comedians who broke out on sitcoms and then kind of became these auteurs of their own shows have i think had, it's a great example yeah they've had like relatively similar past and with master of none like he just aziz ansari just completely transformed the season like he's barely even in it it's like completely different format it's like a more like an art film than anything else and the emmys were just like nope not, <laughs> not not any I, I wouldn't say that like the cultural attention was really there either and i think atlanta does have more attention on it than that but yeah if an auteur like these like donald glover lee's aziz ansari wants to take a big swing and someone wants to fund it and like if it doesn't pan out like i think that's okay i think it's okay for them to take those big swings and try it like in the era of the netflix algorithm and them trying to recreate new girl risks on tv feel like they're threatened and i feel grateful that they still exist at all a hundred percent. And, you know, Donald Glover has very rightly earned multiple Emmys for the show. I think it should have won Best Comedy Series, one of those first two seasons. Um, and I think it came really close. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think Master Done's a great example of of the possible Emmy fate of this show this season. And last year was a really comparatively barren field for comedy. You know, yeah. you had almost no returning nominees. 
Netflix's top contenders were, along with the Kaminsky Method, which was returning the only returning nominee, yeah. uh, you had Cobra Kai, which did somehow make it through. It was a real Cinderella <laughs> and, story. Yeah, and you had Master of None, which they were... I've spoken to sources close to Netflix, and they really believed Master of None was going to make it through. Yeah, um, oh yeah, Cobra it was getting Kai. a hard push. Um, because... That show was so beloved by Emmy voters, and Aziz had one like Donald Glover in the past, yeah. not for not for acting, but for writing. And yeah, I, I wonder the same thing about Atlanta. Is um, you know, it, it got the Emmy friendly release. It's certainly ambitious and interesting, but yeah. I don't know if it would pass the comedy series twenty twenty two test for this, for most voters. Yeah, I mean, and this is the question: is like after this period where the Emmys like really opened up to different interesting stuff. Like I think Fleabag being a real like ultimate example of that. We're like, oh, it's going to be also random V, but then it just runs the table. Like does the reversion to feel good comedy mark a reversion in the ambition of the Emmys themselves? Mm-hmm. And, and if I could open it up a little bit, one of the broader questions with this category is, so you have the likes of Hacks and Ted Lasso coming back for season two and Only Murders and Abbott Elementary or Freshman. But along with Atlanta, you have shows... Uh, that have been around for quite a bit. I, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's a former category winner. Yeah. That ha- was also off the air for quite a long time that it feels to me like also returned with a little bit less buzz. It regained it yes. in the end, um, I think, with a with a strong, well-received finale and centering Luke Kirby, which is all we all want. Listen, <laughs> former Little Goldman guest Luke Kirby, who then went on to win his Emmy. So I'm I'm taking credit for that bump. We knew him when. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that how the balance between these vets coming back in a very different world versus these newbies who are really where all the excitement and energy is, how voters split the difference between the two will be interesting because this is a group who's known for, you know, lazy mm-hmm. <laughs> name checking, nominating the same stuff over and over. Um, but that reputation is a little uh, out of date. And, yeah. and this is a really, this category is an interesting test of that. Yeah. I think if we, as long as there's not a like massive, like if we get a Ted Lasso sweep again, I think that would be a real despairing moment given all of the the competition and like the worthy stuff out there. But I think, I think they have the potential to, to spread the wealth and make some interesting choices here. Let's pivot to one more Emmys category before we wrap up, because uh, we had a question from Amy, who uh, is a frequent subtext texter. You can also text us too. We'll tell you at the end of the show. But she said, I'm seeing lots of articles and reviews praising Mandy Moore on This Is Us. Is it possible we're going to get a serious push for a nomination or maybe even a win for her? And the timing of this could not be better, David, because uh, (laughs) once you listen to this, you'll be able to read David's uh, huge profile on Mandy Moore, basically asking this exact question. Um, And as someone who has not really kept up with This Is Us, your piece really persuaded me of the caliber of the work that she's doing on the show. And it seems like, the, her collaborators on the show really believe in her too. They they really do. And and that's a big theme with this show is a cast that greatly supports each other. And at the at the beginning of the Success's run, it was definitely the Sterling K. Brown show. He won the Best Actor Emmy for that first season. Then Ensemble was totally behind him. This is an incredibly tightly knit cast. You talk to anyone off the record, on the record, on background, they will tell you the same thing. Uh, They really love each other. And right now, it feels like all efforts are behind Mandy Moore. Mm. Sterling K. Brown has literally launched an Emmy campaign for her on his Instagram. Uh, I spoke to Milo Ventimiglia for the profile, who spoke 
not just glowingly of her, but really admiringly and really with a lot of pride. Uh, mm. They were kind of the anchor of the show at the beginning before any of them knew what it would become, both in terms of popularity, in terms of the tasks that particularly Manny Moore was given uh, over yeah. the course of the show. I think they, he ended it just kind of in awe of her. And, and that was a word that came up in a couple conversations about her performance in the show. Yeah, had Sterling K. Brown won the Emmy for People vs. OJ when the show started? I'm trying to remember if he was a known He won quantity. it just before. Okay, so it was like, so when they were hired, uh, Milo Ventimiglia and many more were like the names who were going to anchor the series. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, the the task before everyone on the show, I guess, like there's so much time hopping and there's so much character work to do, but you realize that like a tearjerker like this, it's not just that you like write sad things happening to people and then like, therefore the audience will flock to it. Like you've got to sell it. And it's not selling old age makeup in to, to that extent and for that long is really, really hard. Like what, either from her co- colleagues or just from watching it, what do you chalk up her success with that to? So th- this, is, this has been my journey <laughs> because <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know yeah. Um, it's confounded people, really. I mean, partly because Mandy Moore was a teen idol who broke out in commercially successful movies that weren't exactly critical darlings or indies sure. that showcased every facet of a performer's talent. And she came onto this show in a role that felt very familiar. Uh, she's got this sense of magic to her. It's very much about her smile and her appeal. And, and there's a lot you don't know about her character. But I think over time, as I thought about it more, I thought about her performances in the past that really stuck out to me. Um, and mm. those were her, that was her work in the comedies, Princess Diaries, and especially Saved. Saved, uh, a that's, personal, a, that's, that's a true old millennial classic. Tr- personal favorite of mine. Because those movies were, you know, early 2000s, right when she was trying to break out as an actor. And her reputation at that time, her persona was very girl next door, very, just very appealing. And so you get to these roles where in both of them, she plays terrible, awful bullies. (laughs) And she's incredibly believable in those parts. And she's fully commits. And there's a lot of humor and nuance uh, that you might not have expected from Mandy Moore at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a a real intuition that I picked up on. And, and I've, I kept thinking about those performances as I was working on this story. And then the other thing I'll say is my particular investment in this narrative came about very organically because I used to recap This Is Us for Entertainment Weekly. Oh, wow. So <laughs> for Recaps better or worse... really builds Stockholm Syndrome. Like, you become a fan. Absolutely do. For better or worse, I was incredibly <laughs> invested in every storyline in this show uh, and every theory. And I, rem- I vividly remember writing about the show end of season two beginning of season three and i would just keep highlighting her and you know when you're doing these recaps you go a little bit on autopilot sometimes and just you know getting everything on paper trying to index some analysis and, and criticism but her performance stuck out more and more as she was given really thorny difficult material and i in in a manner i would say that the rest of her cast was not you know Mm. she gets uh in her I would say slightly older timeline. She's playing, she plays her character in her mid sixties and older than that. Um, but in, in the sixties version of Rebecca, she, her relationship with her daughter, Kate gets really messy and interesting. And it's just fascinating to watch her kind of live in the ambiguity of that. Um, and I thought that was really powerful work that forecast what we've seen in these past few seasons, especially. 
Well, you also just kind of handicapped her competition. You were writing about Laura Linney and Ozark, who I think is a is strong competitor in there, as is Zendaya. So what's her path to really making a run for it in the drama actress category? First, she has to get a nomination, which sure. okay. <laughs> she she has not been nominated since 2019. Co-stars like Sterling K. Brown and Chris Sullivan have been nominated more recently. So she has been a bit underrated uh, among her ensemble on the show. Milo Ventimiglia has also been nominated more than her. Um, and in addition to Laura Linney, you have Zendaya, who feels like a lock, who yeah. won this category in her last year of eligibility. Jennifer Aniston. Melanie Linsky is coming in for Yellow Jackets. And I yeah. think that show will carry her to her first nomination. End of Killing Eve, you've got former nominees Jodie Comer and Sandra Oh. You know, there's there's a lot of tough competition, and there aren't a ton of spaces in this category, at least typically. Yeah. So her first task is to break through. Um, and I think she's right on the bubble there. It does feel like this wave that's coming for her is really perfectly timed. Well, yeah, but the I finale's think, airing this week, right? Yep. The finale will have aired when this is this is live, yeah. as will the profile. So huh. VanityFair.com, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, I, I think she would be in it for the win. If she yeah. would, you know, this was kind of the Zendaya test. Euphoria was not an Emmy contender for its first season, and her nomination was something of a question mark. And she was able to break through. And I think because of how good and, and just how visibly, like, intense and impressive... Uh, what she's done on the show is, I think she'll be right in there. And it's because it's a popular vote system, you know, you check off one name. Yep. I think there's going to be a lot of splitting between Laura Linney and Zendaya alone. So I, I do think there's a path there if she she were to crack the category. I love a vote splitting theory. It just always it's, ramps it's always up my the, favorite. the excitement. And like, I feel like we imagine it far off and then it really happens, but you never know. I will definitely say that is how Hacks won. I forget if it was directing or writing, but... Ted Lasso had submitted like four episodes mm-hmm. and like all of them got nominated. And yeah, in the end, that did not help it. So it does, yeah, it does know, happen. You know, there are word strategists looking at that being like, okay, that's why we're not doing that this year. <laughs> we're picking one and running with it. Sorry, writers. You can't <sighs> all be nominated because then none of you will win. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Richard and Rebecca will be back from Cannes if all travel goes well and we'll have the whole summer ahead of us. We'll also be doing something of a Pride Month-themed set of episodes. We're going to be doing some Oscar flashbacks. We're going to be talking about some topics just about queer representation in Hollywood and movies. We've got Fire Island coming out next week, so a lot to look forward to there. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, including so much of Richard and Rebecca's great can coverage and David's profile on Mandy Moore, which you should read all about. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Richard and Rebecca have run off to a boulangerie, but uh, you can find them on Twitter. Probably know where to find them. You can text us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7035. Our producer and editor is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our summer wardrobe goes to Richard Lawson. Sweater tennis vest with no shirt. 